So we're looking at page 82 in the Pew Bibles, chapter 24 of Exodus. This is the Word of God. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, Everything the Lord has said we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up twelve stone pillars representing the twelve tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said, we will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of of the Israelites. They saw God, and they ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and stay here, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and commands I have written for their instruction. Then Moses set out with Joshua, his assistant, And Moses went up on the mountain of God. He said to the elders, Wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and Hur are with you. And anyone involved in a dispute can go to them. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, The glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went on up the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Amen. Wouldn't it be great if we could see God, so we think? You know, if if we saw God with our own eyes, then uh, we'd be sure that he was definitely there. It would end all speculation, would it not? And in this bridge chapter, it looks at some of the things that have already come before in Exodus, the reading of the law, the call to obedience. Uh, We have the covenant confirmed. But the chapter also looks ahead. Uh, And during this particular visit up the mountain, Moses is given instructions about things that will dominate the rest of Exodus and indeed much of the rest of the Old Testament. For example, be, there's the building of the tabernacle, there's the priesthood, there's the sacrifices seen in the sprinkling of blood that we had in this chapter. And picking up these themes, I want to ask two questions this morning and find clues in this passage to answering them. First question is, who can see God? Who can see God? And the second question is, how can we come close to God? Who can see God? And how can we come close to God? So first of all, who can see God? Uh, you know, to, to see God with our own eyes has, has always been a fascination 
for the human race in ancient cultures like Egypt and, and the Greek uh, and Roman cultures, they, they sort of satisfied their curiosity by making images and setting them up. Uh, you remember Paul walking through Athens and saying that there were all kinds of idols and images to different gods, but he was going to tell them about the, the, the god who was the unknown god. And if you look at Hinduism, it's still full of all kinds of, of images and so on, representing uh, a plethora of, of gods and so on. But the God of Israel doesn't play ball that way. That's not his way. Uh, as we know from the Ten Commandments, right at the start of the commandments, uh, we are ordered not to make any image of him at all, not to set up any kind of icon or image. Uh, and we see, and even in this passage, we see that he, that he hid himself from the people in smoke and fire. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went on up the mountain. Now, in Exodus 33, we'll find later when we return to it again, God said to Moses, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. And yet we have instances through the, the Old Testament in particular of a folk drawing there and getting a, a glimpse of God or his glory. Hagar, uh, Samson's parents, Gideon, uh, all saw an angel and said that they had seen God. They had got a glimpse of God's glory. Elijah, he was hidden in a cave. And when he came out, he covered his face with his cloak and, and God passed by. And, and although it says that Moses spoke with God face to face, in, in Ezekiel, or sorry, in Exodus 33, 21 to 23, the Lord said, There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. So this is quite clear throughout. And in the passage we read here, Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, the 70 elders, they go up and it says they went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli or sapphire as bright blue as the sky. So they saw God's feet. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, they ate and they drank. They saw his feet and afterwards shared in a, in a fellowship meal, and God didn't raise his hand about it, uh, about them or to them. And all of these, I suppose, are exceptional circumstances, and they, the clear message of the Old Testament is that sinful people cannot see God and live. He is altogether holy. And verse 17, to the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on the mountain. And that's echoed again in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, it is interesting that the people came to the foot of the mountain. The elders go a bit further. Moses and Joshua a bit further still, but only Moses goes to the top of the mountain. And all of those only at God's invitation. They're only able to go as close to God as he allows. They're only able to see what he allows them to see. We cannot see God, but he reveals himself. He makes himself known in the ways that he determines. But this idea of you know, the people coming so far and then the elders and then 
the uh, uh, Moses and Joshua, Moses and Joshua, and then Moses. Does that not ring bells of what what's about to happen with regard to the tabernacle? The people will come to the outer court. The priests may enter the holy place where the lampstand and the showbread will be, but only the chief priest can enter the holy of holies, and that only once a year. Uh, with blood to offer for the atonement for the people. They cannot see God and live. So the whole setup of the tabernacle is set up to remind the people of the unapproachability of God, the holiness, the, the otherness of God, and how only uh, those whom God determines can come near. And in the New Testament, we see that things change but they don't really change. They change, but they stay the same in a certain way. So we come to John chapter 1, verse 18, and it says there that no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father has made him known. And the message we learn from this and which Moses and the people learned is that no one can see God except in the way he chooses to make himself known. And he has chosen to make himself known supremely in Jesus Christ, his son. God cannot be known apart from Jesus Christ, is the message. God cannot be seen except in Jesus Christ, his son. And this is either incredibly arrogant or it is the absolute truth of who Jesus is. The one and only Son who is himself God and has revealed God to us. The Word become flesh. God the Son taken on human flesh. And we know that that's certainly what Jesus believed himself because he said himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And in the very next verse, he goes on to say, if you really know me, you would know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And have seen him. Philip asks Jesus to, to show them the father. And Jesus replies, anyone who has seen me has seen the father. So who can see God? Those can see God who come close, who come to know, who come to accept Jesus as Savior and Lord, who come to surrender themselves to him. In John 14, verse 20, it goes on, On that day you will realize that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. So take this, take, take this back and think this picture of the, the holiness, the unapproachability of God in the, in the Old Testament and also in the New. But Jesus has made the Father known on his terms. And now Jesus is able to say to all those who put their faith in him, I am in you. Which is even better than just seeing with the naked eye. We see God through union with Christ Jesus. For the Father is in him, and he is in us. And then the second question, how can we come close to God? How can sinful people come close to God? And verses 4 and 8, 
4 to 8 tells us that Moses built an altar at the foot of the mountain, set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Later uh, on, the tabernacle would be at the very center of the Israelite camp and the 12 tribes would camp round about it. Uh, So God is in the very heart of his people uh, and the the protection of the holy and the holy holy place and the holy of holies is is protected by all of the people camped around. Young Israelite men, uh, it specifies, were sent to offer burnt offerings, probably prefiguring or pointing forward to the coming priesthood. They offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls. The other half he splashed or sprinkled against the altar. Uh, And this most likely indicated God's anger against sin was being paid for, turned away by the sacrifice and the shedding of blood being sprinkled against the altar. And then, verse 8, Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So just as the Israelites put blood on the doorposts of their, their houses uh, in Egypt, and they were passed over you know, at the Passover, so the sprinkling of blood, and this is symbolic that their sins have been paid for, that they now belong to God. He was saying to them, you have been sprinkled. Your sins are paid for. You are mine. You belong to me. And then when we jump into the New Testament, there are two verses in particular that bring this out. It comes out in various places, but I'm going to mention two. Uh, first one is First Peter 1 verse 2. Just as God chose Moses to go up the mountain and chose a priest to enter the tabernacle, so now he has chosen all believers to approach him in faith, having been sprinkled clean by the blood of Christ. In 1 Peter 1 verse 2, it says, You have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. And then to pick that up again in Hebrews 10, 22, we're told, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Now, we we all know of of one-off events uh, that still have an application in, in the present being born, for example, is a one-off event. It still has an application in the present because I am alive. Uh, having your tonsils out uh, or having a baby is a, is a one-off event in the past but still has application in the present. And what it's talking about here is that this sprinkling is a once-for-all act in Hebrews that still applies in the present. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse them from a guilty conscience. When you come to Jesus Christ in saving faith, you are sprinkled clean by his blood. It indicates that you now belong to God, that there is no longer any sacrifice for sin necessary. Jesus' blood was shed once for all uh, so that those whose hearts are sprinkled to cleanse them from a guilty conscience are now counted as clean, as acceptable, as accepted in Christ. It's a new status with God, whether we feel it or not. You see, when we think about a guilty conscience, we, we, think, we tend to think about you know, our daily struggles, you know, the, the wrestlings that we have every day trying to be good and not be bad, that kind of stuff. 
Um, and that, that's a real struggle, um, and it's meant to be a real struggle, and that's true. Uh, in fact, it's, but it's not about our feelings at all. You know, this is, this is much more foundational. Our hearts have been cleansed from the guilt of sin once for all. Peter Renz writes this, he says, the significance of this for Christians today is to realize that they are finally, truly okay with God. To be sprinkled by Christ's blood is a definitive, unambiguous, and undisputable statement of God, from God. You are clean, he is saying. You are forgiven. You are mine. You may approach me with the full assurance of faith. Now, to be honest, many of us don't get this as Christians. Or many of us keep slipping back from it. We don't really grasp it. We still struggle each day with, with a guilty conscience. And, but even worse, we struggle to, make, to try and make ourselves acceptable to God. You know, failure, try harder, failure, try harder, failure, try harder. And that's the, the tape loop that goes on through our heads. I'm a failure. I, you know, I've, I've got things wrong, done it wrong. If, if only I was better. And we, 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 we work and we try to make ourselves better. We try to make ourselves acceptable to God. But let me read Peter Ends again. Christians are not perfect. Our problems do not go away magically when we come to Christ. We struggle with many of the same things everyone else struggles with. A persistent, nagging, guilty conscience, however, should not be one of them. Freedom from guilt before God is foundational to a Christian experience. It is the gift of God. We are forgiven. We are made new. We are sprinkled clean. We are accepted and acceptable to God, not through our own righteousness, but through Christ's righteousness. And that's the basis on which we are able to approach God in full assurance of faith. Our hearts have been sprinkled to cleanse him from a guilty conscience. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This, this is grace. This is the gospel of grace. And this is, this is something we need to, to, to grasp. We don't need another dollop of Christ's blood to take care of our sin. It has already been taken care of. If we have entrusted our lives to the Lord Jesus, then we have been sprinkled clean and we are accepted and acceptable to him. Billy Graham was once uh, driving through a, a small southern town and he was stopped by the, the, the police and charged with speeding. Uh, he admitted his guilt, but the officer told him he still had to appear in court. Uh, and uh, the judge asked if he was guilty, not guilty. Billy Graham said he was guilty, and the judge replied that the fine would be $10 a uh, dollar for every mile he had gone over the speed limit. And then suddenly the judge recognized who Billy Graham was. Uh, and he said, you have violated the law. The fine must be paid, but I'm going to pay it for you. And he took a $10 bill from his own wallet, attached it to the ticket, and then took Billy Graham out and bought him a steak dinner. Uh, that doesn't often happen when you're speeding. <laughs> I've never known that to happen. And those of you who have done that course rather than losing points in your license, and some of you have. I have never done that. 
I've just paid the fine. <laughs> you thought I wasn't going to go that far uh, twice. Um, <laughs> once in Scotland, once here. Sorry, uh, yeah, that's right, but not in our order. Anyway, sorry, I'm off to a travel track here. Uh, but paid the fine for Billy Graham, took him out and bought him a steak dinner. And Billy Graham basically said, that's how God treats repentant sinners. He pays the price for us. And then he treats us as sons and daughters of the king. He buys us a steak dinner. You are wrestling with sin on a daily basis is a wrestling out of gratitude for what God has done for us. It's it's a wrestling out of a a desire to please God, not, not a desire to earn his favor. It's to please the one who has loved us so much and has already cleansed us from our sin. And so you can come close to God with full assurance of faith. You are dearly loved. You are his. And this is the covenant of grace. A covenant, you see, is different from a, from a contract. You know, if a patient misses a doctor's appointment, the doctor isn't obliged to go out and find out where they were and why they missed the appointment. They, they have an informal contract which one party has broken. However, if a child doesn't turn up for a meal, parents are obliged to go out and find where the child is to make sure that they're safe. The relationship is different. And in the Bible, the covenant is more like the ties of a parent to a child than a doctor to a patient. The child's failure to turn up doesn't break the relationship. A Bible, a biblical covenant is an, is an unconditional commitment to love. And the covenant of grace that God has made with us. It's a unilateral covenant. He has made that covenant with us. It is all from him. He loved us. He paid for our sin. He sprinkled us clean. He called us to himself in faith. As Moses said to the people, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. So God is absolutely bound and committed by his own word to the covenant that he has made with us. He cannot break it and remain God. He has promised. He has committed himself. He has signed and sealed it in the blood of his son. And he will fulfill fulfill that covenant blessing. And part of that blessing is that he counts those who are in Christ as his own. And we are free and able to approach him with full assurance of faith. We remember this when we take the bread and wine of communion. We reenact it as we sprinkle water at baptism. We live in obedience to his law because we want to please him who loved us so much. So who can see God? We see God through union with Christ. For the Father is in him and he in us. And how can we come close to God? Well, all who are surrendered to Christ Jesus can come close to God in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. Through what he has done for us in this covenant of grace, we can see God through union with Christ. We can come close to him, having once been sprinkled. We can stand as children of of the promise.
we can stand as children of the covenant.